Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 9th, 2014. Now, today will be our light episode. I I understand it's a shorter week. Unfortunately, my schedule is not movable at the moment. But you will be in good hands. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We slow down, stop, open up our Bibles and compare what popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, you know, all of them are saying in the name of God to what God's Word really says. And unfortunately, we often find that what they're saying doesn't square with what God's Word says. So what do you do? Well, you repent, you believe the truth, and you find pastors and preachers and teachers who will feed you the Word correctly, Focus you on Christ and Him crucified. Now, what do you do with the Old Testament? The Old Testament's a tough nut to crack and very difficult for Christians oftentimes to understand what to do with it. Many times people look at the Old Testament and they think, ooh, God of wrath. Then they look at the New Testament and go, ooh, God of love and grace. And so they don't like the God of the Old Testament. They like the God of the New Testament. The reality is this, is that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the question is, what do you do with the Old Testament? Well, we've been working our way through a series, a short series of lectures put out by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he works through the themes in the book of Genesis. Last week it was Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden in the fall. Today we're going to take a look at the story of Cain and Abel and what to do with that. In fact, we're going to get right to it without any further ado. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and bless you for this time, and we pray your blessing upon this, the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at themes in Genesis, and really only one main theme over the course of the first three chapters, the theme being worship, and we're going to continue with that today, looking at chapter 4, Cain and Abel, which, of course, is all about worship. So let's pick up with chapter 4. Let's read through the narrative and then let's discuss and discuss it in light, uh, particularly with the way that the author of Hebrews looks at this text. So, beginning with chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten probably the man with the help of the Lord. At least Luther takes it this way, that Eve believed that with Cain, her pregnancy with Cain, God was fulfilling the promise He had made back in Genesis 3 to the serpent in earshot of both Eve and Adam that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And so it is most likely the case, again going with Luther, that... As Eve says, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord, she is thinking that Cain is to be the Messiah, is to be the Savior. Luther thinks that this also is why Cain acts the way Cain acts, is he thinks he is the Messiah. 
Imagine having that as your older brother. The guy who thinks he's the Messiah. Well, let's continue. Verse 2, And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel means nothingness or of no account. So you have Cain, who is the man from the Lord, the Messiah, and Abel, the next guy who doesn't much matter. Thanks for the great name, Mom. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. What was Adam, his father? Do you remember from Genesis, the earlier chapters, what God gave him and Eve to do? Tend the garden. So Adam was a farmer. Not Abel. Abel doesn't get his dad's job. Abel gets to hang out with the smelly, stinky, fallen world sheep. So even Abel's vocation seems to be lesser. What was Cain's vocation, do you think, as the firstborn? Farmer, taking after dad. We'll see that in just a second. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was the world's first shepherd. And Cain, a worker of the ground. Verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, consider for a moment, because this is the second time we've seen worship explicitly, or what we would even call divine service, explicit in Genesis. What was the first time? The tree. And who was around the tree? Adam, Eve, and Satan was there too. And they were meditating on God's Word. Where God's Word is, there the church. there is the church. So God was preaching. God's Word was attached to that tree. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In faith, they were remembering His Word, looking upon that tree, not eating it. And Satan comes and deceives them. So consider how worship was set up by God in Genesis. It was nothing more than listening to His Word, meditating on His Word, and abiding in His gracious mercy. In His many gifts. That was worship. Now look how worship is changed. What's going on here now in worship in chapter 4, post-fall? There's sacrifice involved. It's not just a matter of listening to God's Word and receiving His gifts. Now something is given back to God. A sacrifice is made. Here in verse 3, we read that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And listen to the description of Abel. Verse 4, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, which, just, just looking at it as if it were a piece of literature, because the Scriptures are always more than human, but they're never less than human. So, it's, it has a human author, though divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look at the difference that Moses writes in here. What sounds better to you? an offering of the fruit of the field, or the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions? The firstborn of his flock and, and the fat portions. That sounds like uh, Cain gave an offering, which, you know, it's just an offering. Nothing necessarily bad about it, but it's just an offering. But look at Abel. What's Abel doing? The best. The best. He's giving the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now the second half of verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now the New Testament has something to say about this, the second worship that we see in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 11 says something about this. So let's turn to Hebrews 11, and it's verse 4, and let's look at the, com the apostolic commentary on this text.
What we have on the surface is, is perhaps a difference between offerings. We see that it's Cain's offering is just an offering. And we see then that Abel's offering is the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. But now that might be the external. That might be what meets the eye. The author of Hebrews takes us to what is internal and to what is most important. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what is the root difference between Cain and Abel? Faith. Cain has no faith when he puts forward his offering. Abel has faith. Abel trusts the Lord, trusts in his mercy, gives, gives thanks. Cain doesn't. Cain follows the instruction. Cain sacrifices. Cain goes through the motions. Cain does the thing. But in Cain, there is no faith. There is no trust. Instead, in Cain, there is self-righteousness. And where might Cain have gotten that idea? Well, if Luther's right, he may have gotten it from mom. You're the Savior of the world, son. You're going to save us. And Cain said, I am the Savior. I'm going to save us. On the contrary, Abel would look to God as his Savior, to God as the one who is merciful, to God as the one who will fulfill. And the fact that the Lord looks upon Cain and his offering with displeasure already gives us a type and a foreshadowing of how God looks at those who come to Him in worship. That those who come to God in worship, going through the motions without faith, without self-righteousness, I mean with self-righteousness, without looking for any good gifts from God, without looking at, to, toward God to be the Savior, that is looked at as lesser unacceptable to God. Whereas Abel, whose name means nothing, who has a second-rate job, but who comes in faith of the Lord, and the faith manifests itself in what looks to be probably a superior offering of the firstborn of his flock, that faith of his, look at verse 4 in Hebrews, that faith of his is that through which he was commended as righteous. So God looks upon the faith of Abel and credits him with righteousness. Does that sound familiar? It's the very thing God does for who? Abraham. And? Us. God credits us with righteousness. Even the man who does not work, even the ungodly man, God credits with righteousness because of his faith. He reckons that faith as righteousness. And that faith itself, we learn, is a gift of God. So God gives the faith, puts the faith in you, and then credits that faith with full righteousness. So here we see already in Genesis the prototype of what all true religion, all true worship will be. It will be a matter of man coming before God either in faith or in unbelief. Either trusting in the Lord or trusting in Himself. Either faith manifesting itself in, a, in an acceptable sacrifice or unbelief manifesting itself in going through the motions. Does that make sense? Now, I think I saw a hand or hands still a question. Okay. So let's, let's go back to Genesis and look at this then. After the, first, after the first divine service in the earlier part of Genesis where they're around the, the tree, of course, what's the end result? What comes of their improper worship, their disobedience and unbelief of God's word? The fall and sin and death. Death. Now look here. We have worship post-fall, the second divine service in the Scriptures. And how does it go? Death. 
because of unbelief. So look, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 5, But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Earlier in Genesis 3, we looked that verb desire that's there, or I guess it's not a verb in that sentence. Its desire is for you. That desire is the same word that we find in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, where God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, if we compare these verses, I think we do good exegesis and we figure out what uh, Moses is getting at. Its desire is for you. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. What does sin want to do? Take over, control. But you must rule over it. Now, does Cain end up ruling over his sin? No, the subsequent verses bear that out. Does anyone end up ruling over their sin? No, not even up to St. Paul, where he says, the good that I want to do, that I do not do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I end up doing. So even Paul doesn't rule over his sin. But the law says, you must rule over it. And that's what God gives to Cain. You must rule over it, even though it means to overcome you. Did I see a hand? Yes, Paul says, Who will save me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus my Lord. So Christ Jesus is the salvation. Christ Jesus would be the salvation for Cain if Cain would what? Despair of himself. If Cain would repent and in faith turn to the Lord and say, Lord, you must save me. You must have mercy on me. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Divine service number one ends in the fall. Divine service number two ends up in martyrdom. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. When you hear uh, Cain's confession, is it much of a confession at all? No, he's saying, woe is me, because I got caught, and my punishment is too heavy, and what will I do, and I, 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 me, me, me. That's Cain's concern. He says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Even though his confession is not a good confession, not a confession looking for God's forgiveness or mercy, just a poor me confession. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God marks Cain with a symbol that will protect him from being killed. In other words, God shows mercy to Cain. Wouldn't it have been lovely if Cain said, Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving me. May I still stand before your face with this mark over me, marking me as one who is not worthy of death because of your grace and mercy. But is that what Cain does? Cain takes off, leaves. 
So here in Cain, we have a type of the unbeliever who will not receive God's grace and mercy, who in fact does receive God's grace and mercy, but he utterly rejects it and goes out. Or he takes it only for what he can get him, right? He takes it and tries to manipulate it. Fine, now no one will kill me. Great, I don't need you anymore, God. I'm out on my own. Luther says that in Abel and Cain, we have a type of the church. The true church and the false church. The wheat and the tares. Those within the church who are faithful as Abel was faithful. Those who are also within the church, marked with God's blessing, God's mercy, who are unfaithful, who persecute the faithful and murder the faithful within the church. So for Luther, the Pope is Cain. And the faithful martyrs are Abel. The faithful church is Abel. And Luther says this is the story of the church from Cain and Abel all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, to his day, to our present time, that within the church there are Cains and Abels. Those who are there in faith, having their faith credited as righteousness, and those who are there boasting in their own righteousness and acting out in murderous ways against the Abels. Make sense? So goes Luther on that reading. Now something else for us to consider before we move on is that Abel is the very first shepherd. Does that send bells ringing for anyone? Abel is the very first who is sacrificed, murdered, killed. Abel is the shepherd who is slain. And here we have then the blood of Abel, uh, verse chapter 4, verse uh, 10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, God said. So the blood of Abel is crying out to the ears of the Lord. Let's turn again to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, 24, and look at the apostolic take on these things. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, 24. 24 is the verse. I said 24? Okay, good. Just pick up 24. It's mid-sentence. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Abel cries out to God for vengeance, for repayment, for justice. And so God enacts justice upon Cain. But the blood of someone else cries out. The blood of who? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus cries out not for vengeance or for justice, but for mercy. Now, as we said back in Genesis with Cain and Abel together, it's worship, and that's where they are. And the author of Hebrews gets that too. So look at Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at the bigger context now. Look at verse uh, 22. Let's start there. Chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come. You are right now. You have come. It's not something in the future. It's now. You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now drop down a little to see what the author of Hebrews is really getting at. Look at verse 28. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship would be the worship of Abel, to worship in faith, and, as the author of Hebrews says, with reverence and awe. When people tell you that the New Testament leaves worship free and, oh, Christians can worship however they please, that is false. Absolutely false. At bare minimum, that worship needs to be a worship of faith, of receiving the gifts of God, of trusting in Christ, not ourselves, not putting forward our works before God, not putting forward our sacrifices before God as if that merits His grace or His mercy but rather, as Abel did, humbly giving what we have to the Lord in faith and trusting that He will atone for our sins, that He will be gracious and merciful. And doing so, the author of Hebrews says, with reverence and awe. So you can walk into a a church of what's happening now and look and see if there is reverence and awe, see if it is Christ-centered, trusting in the blood of Jesus, or see if it is man-centered, man putting forward to God. And you can see that it is quite opposite then of what the author of Hebrews describes as Christian worship. Use this as the rule that governs and guides you. The author of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And that description is given even further for us in the liturgy of Revelation that goes on and on, where we see Christ and the Lamb, and we see reverence and awe. And you say, that is the worship of heaven, that is the worship of the New Testament, is where I am in line with that worship or is where I am so far away from that vision of worship as to be unrecognizable, then you'll know if you're in a place that is in line with the apostolic admonitions about worship. All right, we are going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lecture on the themes in Genesis and Cain and Abel. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. 
preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room, or sit in silence for several minutes, or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair, and... Oh, no. What are you saying? You out there! Harvest wants to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. back morning listening to fighting for the faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church yeah the type of message you're hearing today you're not hearing that yeah it might become dissatisfied just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here 
without it. Okay, here's the balance of today's lecture on the themes in Genesis from the story of Cain and Abel. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. So look at these magnificent things. You are... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. As we say in our liturgy, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, right? With angels and archangels and all the saints who are there, who have died, who are around the throne. We don't just, that's not just a pious Lutheran thought. Look, it comes from Scripture, He says, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You may not be able to see him with your eyes, but that's what's going on in divine service. Yeah, right over there in that little sanctuary. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, if people thought that that's what actually was happening on Sunday morning, what do you think their worship would look like? To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. It's just as John depicts in Revelation. We we come and worship to the one who sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne. The Lamb looks as one having been slain, and yet He stands. And this Lamb is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. His blood shed on the cross for us. But think theologically. What does Jesus say is the new covenant? The only place Jesus talks about the new covenant in all of his preaching, what is the new covenant? His blood where? In the sacrament. This cup is the new testament, the new covenant in my blood. The only place Jesus speaks of the new covenant is in his cup, the wine that is his blood. So now look at this, because this is what the early church believed. This is what the early church preaches. In worship, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Where is the blood being sprinkled? On you in communion. His blood is being sprinkled upon you into your lips, into the very center of your being. His blood is sprinkling you clean. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the new covenant in his cup, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, but Jesus' blood cries out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that voice not only cries out to you, but Abel's voice cried out to who? God. And the blood of Jesus sprinkled upon your lips also cries out to God. Saying, have mercy, forgive this one, for my blood is upon him. And if the Son's blood is upon you, if the Son's blood is sprinkled you clean, do you think that God hears that and honors that? That's why He sent His Son. Not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might have life. You see, the New Testament has plenty to say about worship. And the fact of the matter is, is you are sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb right over in that sanctuary, and angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, innumerable angels in festal gathering, are there before the One who sits upon the throne and before the Lamb. Questions or comments? Pretty cool stuff, huh? I think so. Sure brings a new meaning to the idea of Christian worship. So that when Jesus says that you will worship in spirit and truth, and he tells us very plainly that he is the way, the truth, and the life, we know that the spirit is the one, Jesus says, who takes the things that are mine, and declares them unto you. 
It is the Spirit who leads us to Jesus. So to worship in spirit and truth is to worship in the Holy Spirit who leads us to Jesus, who is the truth, who shows us the truth about God and reveals the Father's face to us, as Pastor Hodel preached this morning. Yes? Yeah, on that same line, I was just thinking about what Cain had done when he said, um, you will, I will be hidden from your face. You know, from your face I will be hidden. And he doesn't understand God never turns his face away from us. It's us who turns our face away from God. Yes. And he still doesn't understand that. And even though God gives him grace, the rest of his life shows he still didn't understand that. Yes. Cain is too proud to allow himself to be forgiven. So he turns his face away from God, away from God's grace and mercy, and departs. Yeah. So Cain is too proud to be forgiven. He is too self-righteous. I don't need your forgiveness. So he walks away. Okay, so the blood of Jesus cries out to God on our behalf. We've looked at uh, chapter 4's aspects of worship. Any questions on Abel or Cain? We've looked at Abel then being a type, uh, one of the very first, if not the first, explicit types of Christ. The author of Hebrews, we see, reads that Jesus is the heart and center even of this text, that that the blood shed by Abel and the blood shed by Jesus, we ought, as soon as we hear of Abel's blood shed, our minds ought to go to the shed blood of Jesus that speaks a better word on our behalf. Yes? I thought there was something to the fact that Abel brought an atoning sacrifice and Cain didn't. Some hold that. That's a minority opinion. Um, very few hold that, but it's possible There's just not enough data, I think, to argue conclusively one way or another. If it, if it was to be an atoning sacrifice, then obviously uh, that would mean that Cain rejected that and brought his own. But, you know, I think, I think against that is the argument of the context that it talks about their vocations and then link, seems to link the sacrifices with their vocations and never seems to indicate that Cain brought the wrong sort of sacrifice in that sense, that he should have brought a bloody sacrifice or something. It talks about how he's a farmer and he brings forth an offering from the land and talks about how uh, Abel's a shepherd and brings forth the firstborn from his flock. So that's why I think that the majority of uh, church fathers and interpreters don't see that at issue. Okay. Though... It's possible, I think. It's not completely ruled out. Good question. Okay, now I'm going to ask a question that will completely derail the theological point you're making. I just want to... I, I, just want to, I reserve the right to ignore it. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> who are these men that, uh, that Cain is so afraid of? I mean, was he afraid that Adam is going to kill him? I don't think or so. Or is he afraid that, or does he have brothers and sisters already, or what? Yeah, that's, that's the most common. Is, is so the, the scriptures obviously don't tell us everything. So at that time, there was already some, some uh, so it looks as though some time had passed between the fall and, and this sacrifice, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, enough that he has apparently brothers and sisters kind of spread around the land. But then presumably later on, when Seth is born, they're born even, he's born even after all these brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think because because right. he's born to replace Abel, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, I I think he's fearful that revenge will be taken. I think Cain's, I mean, I think Cain's fearful that that those who loved Abel are going to take revenge on him, um, and that's his chief fear. Uh, I mean, he's I don't think he's thinking that. Um, well, there's going to be corporate punishment and I should avoid that necessary or something. I think he's thinking of like a renegade uh, mob, so, so to speak, people who just come and murder him. We'll get to you. I've got a hand back here. Yes, Dave. I just wondered if you could comment on uh, verse 10 of Genesis 4. It's Chapter uh, 4, verse 10? 4, 4, 10, sorry. Um, the, the voice of your brother's blood's crying to me from the ground there's a certain um earthy comfort that i get from uh, from can you hear me i barely okay there's a certain uh earthy comfort that i get from reading that verse uh 
uh-huh. that um, the the voice of the blood is crying out to God from the earth. Um, and the parallel from Hebrews with Jesus' blood crying to us, I just wondered if you had a comment on that. Yeah, that's one of the things in my mind that I continue to study because there's something in... Um, I'll give you my half-baked or unbaked thoughts, all right? My half-baked or unbaked thoughts are as you read through the Genesis narrative at various points here and in the flood, uh, something, something unnatural has happened to the earth. And the earth is now described as drinking blood and consuming flesh, and it's as if the earth itself has become monstrous. So the earth that was to give life now takes and eats life. Um, the, and, and there's, so there's a, almost a monstrous change that's taken place. And so the frightful thing about death is you're swallowed up by the earth, by this monster. Remember when Jesus is thinking about his own death, uh, he compares that to Jonah. And what happened to Jonah? He was swallowed by a sea monster, well, a monster of the sea, a fish large enough to eat him, a monster of the sea. And he's swallowed by that, and then he, by God's grace and mercy, is spat out and overcomes that death, overcomes that being swallowed up by the monster. And Jesus points to this as the sign that he will give for what he's going to do in his death and resurrection, where the earth tries to swallow Jesus like a monster, but has to spit him out because the earth can't hold him and so in, death can't hold him. And so in spitting him out, Jesus is victorious. And that foreshadows then that the graves will have to vomit us all out. And that foreshadows that the earth itself, its power to swallow the blood and consume the flesh is undone. And so it's the undoing of this earth as monster, and the earth will once again be made a new heavens and a new earth, right? So those are my half-baked thoughts trying to tie some themes together. Yeah, so it's very comforting, I think, for us. Um, you know, when you look at the ugliness of death uh, at an actual funeral um, or, or right after death when you're in the room with, the, with your loved one, um, death is an ugly thing. And when you put that body into the grave, though we uh, try to shelter ourselves from the reality um, with the, uh, the concrete and the nice casket and, and uh, the ceremony and, and, and everything is so uh, you know, hygienic or has the appearance of being clean and neat, um, the reality is, as we all really actually know, is... Uh, is ugly and it's a consuming and it's the body's gone and that's what it looks like. But to know that Jesus went into that same tomb, that same death into the belly of the earth, as it were, and did not see corruption and came out means that he has hallowed the graves of his saints. He has made those graves a holy place. And he, because he has conquered the monstrous nature of the earth and grave that swallows, and it has spat him out, then our comfort is that it will one day spit out we who die in faith, because the grave will not hold us. And that gets us to our next section a little bit as we consider uh, uh, the flood. One of the things that the flood is all about, that the New Testament is all about, is a promise that there is a new humanity that emerges upon the resurrection. A new humanity. Whereas death now is our great curse, and whereas death now is, is our great humbling and humiliation. Right? I mean, it, you know, that's true what it is personally, because, you know, as you go through the process of dying, like, you know, your hair falls out, or at least mine does, your eyes go dim, or at least mine do and you waste away, and um, I'm half the man I used to be, and it's humbling, right? Death humbles you. And the ultimate humbling of death is it brings you to where you can't even take care of your own corpse. Someone else has to do that, and someone else sees you like that. And 
so there's this death is this uh, viewed from this point of judgment is is um, a complete humiliation of the person and a bringing to nothing. But to be resurrected from that because of faith in Christ, because of Christ's own resurrection, is to conquer that, to overcome that. You see, death that was such an insult is now, I think, in the new humanity that God is creating, is going to be the essence of who we are. We are they who have conquered death. We will be death conquerors. That which was our, uh, that which was our greatest insult is now our greatest trophy. We are the immortal ones. We are the ones who defeated the monster that is the earth that tried to swallow us. We are the victors over death. We are the immortal sons of the living God, cleansed by the Son of the living God, shed blood for us. And so we, be- we begin that new humanity, as it were, as those who have held the faith and kept the faith against all odds in the face of all temptation, in the face of all humiliation, and we have conquered it all, and it is now our trophy and our victory and our pride. Does that help? Does that make sense? So it's an overcoming and an undoing, so that just as Jesus, right, his wounds were his shame on the cross. It's why the disciples departed. It's why everyone turned their head. His wounds were his shame. And now his wounds that he still retains, that's his glory. That's his victory. That's his triumph. Those are the very wounds to which we look and fall upon our knees and say, my Lord and my God. And so when we overcome death in our own way, uh, that will be our trophy as well, given to us by Christ Jesus, who gives to us the victory. Did I see another hand? Okay. Well, we've barely got time to uh, start with our next session. Our, our section, are we done with uh, Cain and Abel for the time being? All right. Well, let's move into to Genesis. I'll say this uh, to Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 6. Let's go to 6 to begin. And I'll say this uh, now to begin our discussion of Genesis. But I'll say it again next week as we get into the full discussion. We simply don't have time in 12 minutes to get into the depth of this. <clears throat> but the flood, the, apos- the apostles and Jesus himself understand, understand the flood. And I'll bear this out. I'll show you where it comes out of their own mouth, their own pen next week. They understand the flood to be something that is a past event that points to a present tense reality. A past event, something that happened, that points to the deeper present tense reality of what actually is right now. That's Jesus' understanding of the flood. That's Peter's understanding of the flood. The flood is not something that it belongs in history. The flood is something that belongs in the present, to fully understand what it is. Now, the flood at its essence, when you just look at it, when you just, uh, when you just consider the raw data from Genesis, the flood is an act of what? Judgment, Judgment destruction, condemnation, right? God's sick of the evil world, and he's going to destroy all life from its face. Which points us immediately where? Not immediately. Baptism, we get there. But it points us immediately to the judgment at the end of the world. And we're going to see where Peter makes that connection for us. So you'll see this isn't Pastor Rody's idea or Luther's idea. It's Peter's idea. So that the judgment that befell all humanity and indeed the entire world is about to happen again, only this time it's a final judgment. It's the flood on steroids. It's the flood in its fullest sense. It's the flood that will usher in the new world, period. Okay? And uh, in the way that we would look at Noah and say, and we'll look at some parallels and say, ah, Noah was like a second Adam. Noah, um, you know, the the face of the earth was wiped clean and humanity got to start over. And we'll look at some of the similarities between what God says to Adam and what God says to Noah. All of that is... uh, fulfilled by and eclipsed by Jesus, who is the second Adam, who is the second Noah, 
who is leading us through the waters of this great judgment, which, as we'll see, isn't actually water but fire, this great judgment that is impending. So we find ourselves, we locate ourselves by Jesus' word and by the apostolic word here at this place in the narrative. God has promised that the flood will come. God has promised that the flood of fire and the judgment will come. God has commanded Noah to build his ark by wood, right? So that wood will be the means by which the people are saved. God has commanded Christ and sent Christ to save humanity by wood. Not the wood of an ark, but the wood of his cross. The days before the rains fall are right now. Because these are the days right before God is going to bring the final flood of fire, the last judgment, the condemnation of the world. The call is going desperately out. Believe, jump into the ark. Believe, jump into the cross. Because the day is coming when it's going to be too late. And in that day where the floods came, they were eating and drinking and making merry right up until the rain started falling and they didn't know what was upon them and the doors of the ark were shut and they perished. And so it will be, Jesus says, before the coming of the Son of Man, that they will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, not realizing that with the first flecks of fire, the first flecks of judgment, what's even happening, and before it's, before they even realize it, it's too late. We'll see Jesus himself draw this parallel so that for Jesus, the flood is a past event that tells us reality now. Were those fools in the wilderness huddled around the ark, huddled around the cross, and everyone's saying, surely the rains aren't going to come. Surely judgment's not going to come. And just as the flood did come upon that generation, the judgment will come upon this world. Make sense? Now, baptism ties into this. And that's what Peter talks to us about in First in Peter. But in order to understand baptism, we have to understand the overarching narrative, the narrative that both Jesus and Peter give to us. Does that make sense? Questions or comments so far? So, the point of this is that Noah and seven others, eight souls in all, are going to be a remnant. The vast majority of the world and humanity is going to perish. These eight souls are going to be a remnant, a new beginning. And so also, we who believe in Christ Jesus and huddle around the ark of His cross, the wood of our salvation, we are to be a remnant. The beginning of a new humanity. The first fruits of a new creation. You see, it's just a beginning. It's not an end. Everyone thinks that the end of the world is an end. It only is for the world, not for us, not for the new heavens and the new earth. It's a beginning. It's a beginning of a new humanity. See, and that reorients us. It ought to. Instead of living in the reality of like uh, protesting and chaos and zombie apocalypse, we ought to be living in the reality of Genesis Noah and his family right before the flood. Because that's where we are. So that changes everything. If you knew that, what would you do? Open your mouth and tell people about Jesus. You would go to your friends and family and anyone around you and say, Get in the boat! Now! There's an urgency. And if there's not an urgency, then you don't believe it yourself. So we find ourselves in a context where there is urgency. The day of mercy is at hand, but the day of judgment is coming. God has delayed His flood of wrath. Come now and get into the cross. Get into the wood that will save you when the flood, when the wrath, when the judgment does come. Right? So we find our whole our whole being, our whole sense of context of where we are in this world utterly changed by this story. The flecks of rain are falling and the ark is there and we need to get out the word to people to get in the ark, right? God has provided this salvation. 
So, so we find ourselves then uh, looking at ourselves living in what we would call an apocalyptic time right now. And what's at stake is absolutely everything, because in the judgment, everyone perishes except for the remnant, and the remnant is a dawn of a new humanity. And that's what I was talking about earlier. We will be those who have conquered death. We will be those who, are, who have overcome the flood, and we will find ourselves... You, you ever think what it was like for Noah and seven others to be the only living souls on the face of the earth? We will find ourselves as a remnant to be the only living souls on the face of the new heavens and the new earth. Just as Noah and those seven others, so it will be for us as a remnant, as the dawn of a new humanity, a humanity righteous through the blood of Christ. Make sense? All right, let's get into the uh, biblical text next week. Let's look exactly at what Jesus has to say about it, exactly at what Peter has to say about it. Then let's look very carefully also at how Peter ties the flood into baptism, how he understands the flood and baptism for us and for our lives as Christians. Any last-minute questions or comments? Okay, let's close and let's go to divine service. The Lord be with you. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.